In today's episode of 715 Mills, how being on Zoom all the time messes with your brain, even if you don't realize it at first. If your grandma's mom thought collecting stamps and coins was a ridiculous waste of time, I wonder what she'd think about the stuff we're collecting and selling as collectibles today. All of that, plus today's secret link and the feel good feature track is coming at you right now. Welcome to 715 Mills, the show that's all about bringing you good news, interesting stories, and genuinely useful things to know. Glad to have you hanging out with me. My name is Andre, and this episode's a doozy. Some very interesting things are going on in the world right now. Complicated things, but still interesting. Especially if you care about your own health and well-being, given everything we've been forced to change in how we do things because of the whole pandemic and the lockdown thing. We can't hang out with our friends in real life, so we do it online now. But at what cost? Then we'll talk about something that the more I think about, the more it blows my mind. One man made a tweet, literally wrote five words on Twitter 15 years ago, and that thing, that digital thing, was just bought by someone for two and a half million dollars. And here I am just sitting here talking into a microphone. You ready yet? Let's get into it. Ever heard the phrase, you need to unmute yourself? What about, can you hear me now? And finally, how about hearing somebody's audio slow down and start sounding like a robot because their connection is choppy, having it drop out and be completely silent for a couple of seconds, and then resuming but sounding like a chipmunk on steroids because their internet connection is kind of getting back to normal, but now the video and the sound is trying to catch up. Thanks to the pandemic, the lockdowns, and the boom in online video conferencing, there's a good chance you've heard, and will continue to hear, one or all of these phrases on a regular basis, especially if you use Zoom and the like. Everybody started video conferencing a lot more, not just as a way to do business remotely, but pretty much as an alternative to most social things we've all used to do in person. Just catching up with friends, having virtual tea parties, that's a thing, having online watch parties, virtual dance parties and hangouts, doing virtual museum tours, and even religious meetings and worship. These aren't exactly replacements for the real thing though, and they're not as good in one way or another, but they're what a lot of us still in lockdown and still under social distancing restrictions have, with just how much so many people, you and me included, I'd be willing to bet, use Zoom or apps like it. Just how exactly does it affect us? You may have heard of the term pandemic fatigue if you've been following news about the mental health effects of being in lockdown and isolation for so long. Here's a quick definition. Pandemic fatigue is a state of being worn out by recommended precautions and restrictions relating to a pandemic, often due to the length of the restrictions and lack of activities for one to engage in, resulting in boredom, depression, and other issues thereby leading one to abandoning these precautions and risk catching the disease. That's pandemic fatigue in a nutshell. But have you heard about something called Zoom fatigue? There is a real mental and psychological cost to always being on apps like Zoom, whether you realize it or not. And the reasons for this are, one, based on how we humans are biologically wired to interact with each other, and two, how these apps are designed, and then three, 
the differences and limitations of the equipment that we use these apps on. Basically, if we're not talking to each other in person, it's literally more stressful and tiring both physically and mentally, even if we don't notice it. That's the oversimplified version. So what's the actual problem? What are the actual effects of Zoom fatigue? And what things can you and I do about it? Let's talk about those questions and find some answers for them. On the 23rd of February 2021, there was a peer-reviewed article titled Nonverbal Overload, a theoretical argument for the causes of Zoom fatigue that was published in the Journal of Technology, Mind and Behavior, authored by Professor Jeremy N. Balenson, the founding director of the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab, or VHIL. Professor Balenson studied and looked into the consequences of regularly spending a lot of time on apps like Zoom, as well as why they happen. He found four key things, so check these out and see if you notice any of these creeping up on you. First one is this. Excessive amount of close-up eye contact is highly intense. He says that the amount of eye contact we engage in on video chats, as well as the size of faces on screens, is unnatural. By the way, I'm going to read excerpts from the Stanford University News article here, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the full thing. You should check it out for the full fat details. The article continues. In a normal meeting, people will variously be looking at the speaker, taking notes, or looking elsewhere. But on Zoom calls, everyone is looking at everyone all the time. A listener is treated non-verbally like a speaker, so even if you don't speak once in a meeting, you are still looking at faces staring at you. The amount of eye contact is dramatically increased. Social anxiety of public speaking is one of the biggest phobias that exists in our population, Balenson said. When you're standing up and everybody's staring at you, that's a stressful experience. Another source of stress is, depending on your monitor size and whether you're using an external monitor, faces on video conferencing calls can appear too large for comfort. In general, for most setups, if it's a one-on-one conversation when you're with coworkers or even strangers on video, you're seeing their face at a size which simulates a personal space that you normally experience when you're with somebody intimately, Balenson said. When someone's face is that close to ours in real life, our brains interpret it as an intense situation that is either going to lead to mating or to conflict. What's happening, in effect, when you're using Zoom for many, many hours is you're in this hyper-aroused state, Balenson said. What's the solution for this one, then? It seems to be largely a design issue relating to how well we understand how us humans interact with computers and the consequences of every design decision. So depending on the application's developer, in this case, we're talking about Zoom in particular, unless they make changes to address these specific issues that Professor Balenson has looked into and pointed out, we're going to have to make do with adjusting what we can for our part. Here's what he recommends. Take Zoom out of the full screen option and reduce the size of the Zoom window relative to the monitor to minimize face size and to use an external keyboard to allow an increase in the personal space between yourself and the grid. A second key finding is this one. Seeing yourself during video chats constantly in real time is fatiguing. Most video platforms show a square of what you look like on camera during a chat, but that's unnatural, according to Professor Balenson. He says that in the real world, if somebody was following you around with a mirror constantly, so that while you were talking to people, making decisions, giving feedback, getting feedback, 
you were seeing yourself in a mirror, that would be just crazy. No one would ever consider that. He cited studies showing that when you see a reflection of yourself, you are more critical of yourself. Many of us are now seeing ourselves on video chats for many hours a day. It's taxing on us, it's stressful, and there's lots of research showing that there are negative emotional consequences to seeing yourself in a mirror. I have an admission to make. Whenever I'm on a Zoom meeting, I tend to mindlessly look at my camera feed more than I do the person actually speaking, especially if that person is boring. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's just the honest truth. It's entirely possible that I'm a self-indulgent narcissist. Maybe. Not sure. It's not stressful for me to look at myself. Just distracting, because honestly, I ought to be looking at the person that's spotlighted. So maybe my subconscious sees my own face and just goes to itself, look at me. I should probably go with the professor's recommended solution here, which is to change the default setting of showing my own video feed to both self and others, and only have it on when it needs to be sent to others. He says that users should use the hide self view button, which one can access by right clicking their own photo once they see their face is properly framed in the video. So pay attention and stop looking to yourself, basically. A third finding is this. Video chats dramatically reduce our usual mobility. So Professor Billinson says that in-person and audio phone conversations allow humans to walk around and move. But with video conferencing, most cameras have a set field of view, meaning that a person has to generally stay in the same spot. So movement that is limited in ways that are not natural. There's growing research now that says when people are moving, they're performing better cognitively, he says. As a solution, the professor recommends that people think more about the room they're video conferencing in, where the camera is positioned, and whether things like an external keyboard can help create distance or flexibility. For example, an external camera farther away from the screen will allow you to pace and doodle in virtual meetings, just like we do in real ones. Also, turning one's video off periodically during meetings is a good ground rule to set for groups, just to give yourself a brief nonverbal rest. So this one is interesting, because usually when I speak to friends and family, it's on audio-only calls, and I do these while I'm puttering around our apartment, either making coffee or cooking, and after reading this, I'm, I'm finding myself agreeing with the notion. I feel like I'm more engaged in the conversation, or that, in some way, my mind is able to do what I'm doing a bit better when I'm not just sat down static and uh, staring at a screen while immobile. Finally, the fourth key finding is this. Cognitive load is higher in video chats. So, quick side note, the oversimplified meaning of cognitive load is how much work your brain needs to do in order to process a thing you're doing or looking at right now. Professor Bailison notes that in regular face-to-face -face interaction, nonverbal communication is quite natural and each of us naturally makes and interprets gestures and nonverbal cues subconsciously. But in video chats, we have to work harder to send and receive those signals. He says that, in effect, humans have taken one of the most natural things in the world, an in-person conversation, and transformed it into something that involves a lot of thought, stating this. You've got to make sure that your head is framed within the center of the video. If you want to show someone that you are agreeing with them, you have to do an exaggerated nod or put your thumbs up. That adds cognitive load as you're using mental calories in order to communicate. Gestures could also mean different things in a video meeting context. A sidelong glance at someone during an in-person meeting means something very different 
than a person on a video chat grid looking off screen to their child who just walked into their home office. What does the professor recommend as a solution to this one? During long stretches of meetings, give yourself an audio-only break. Professor Balenson says that this is not simply you turning off your camera to take a break from having to be non-verbally active, but also turning your body away from the screen so that for a few minutes you're not smothered with gestures that are perceptually realistic but socially meaningless. So yeah, Zoom fatigue is totally a real thing. Professor Balenson and a few other people, including uh, Jeff Hancock, the founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab, have devised what they call the ZEF scale, the Zoom Exhaustion and Fatigue Scale, to help measure how much fatigue people are experiencing in the workplace from video conferencing. It's a freely available 15-item questionnaire, this is according to the article, that anyone can take. You can take it right now if you want to, actually. In fact, I just took it for kicks while I was writing this episode. It felt like there were more than 15 questions, to be honest. Anyway, here are my results, if you're curious. First, they explain the scoring system, and here's what the survey says. The ZEF score ranges from 15, less fatigue, to 75, more fatigue. Your overall ZEF score, that's me, is 30, which puts you in the 12th percentile for Zoom fatigue. This means that about 88% of people have more fatigue after video conferencing than I do. Then, they go into more detail about the types of fatigue you can experience. So the survey results continue saying this. This ZEF scale also breaks Zoom fatigue down into five subtypes. Each type of fatigue has a score interval between 3, low fatigue, and 15, high fatigue. So here's the first one. Emotional fatigue relates to feeling overwhelmed and drained after interactions with other people. And my score for emotional fatigue is 6. So I'm slightly fatigued and drained after interacting with people. I thought I'd rank higher in this one because I kind of feel like I'm not too good with small talk, but over time I've just gotten enough practice to feel more indifferent rather than anxious about the idea of making small talk. That's my theory. And then the survey talks about motivational fatigue, which relates to the motivation to start an activity and feeling active. My score for motivational fatigue is 6, which represents the 10th percentile slightly less motivated to do stuff after a video call, basically. Next is visual fatigue, which is how we perceive vision or visual distress. My score for that is 4, just a tiny bit of eye strain. Then there's social fatigue, which refers to feeling, which refers to the feeling of wanting to be alone after interactions with other people. My score for social fatigue is 8, which I find to be quite accurate. I have a pretty strong inclination to do non-social things after video conferencing, even if it's just quietly reading or even just mindlessly scrolling through social feeds. And now that I think about it, this is even truer for in-person social interactions for me, with maybe the exception of my really close family and friends, and if the stuff we're talking about is something I'm really interested in. And then finally, there's general fatigue. And general fatigue relates to the superordinate experience of being tired. Superordinate. Um, hmm. So I had to look up that word, and superordinate means a higher rank, status, or value. So basically, it means a broader category that contains the previous lower categories of fatigue that we've been talking about. So my, gen- my score for general fatigue is 6. So, in all, that's how they arrived at my overall score of 30 out of 75. 
If you've been doing stuff on Zoom or just video conferencing fairly regularly, check out the survey and give it a shot, and you just might find out some interesting things about yourself. So check out the show notes for this episode. This is episode 19 for both the full Stanford News article on the paper, as well as the link to the survey. Welcome to the break, folks. Just wanted to thank you for tuning in to the show and hanging out. How are you? Still managing all right, I hope. Well, things around the world are starting to kind of calm down and improve a little bit. Hopefully it keeps going that way for a little bit more. And I hope that wherever you are, you're able to make the best of your situation by staying healthy and staying afloat. In my opinion, those are two of some of the most important things you can and should focus on right now. I know what it feels to be under the gun financially and in many other ways, but hang in there. Keep looking for ways to hustle and get by. Keep putting the time and effort in, and you'll manage. Find ways, get by all right, even if things feel like they're really hard for you right now. Just keep at it. So yeah, keep taking care of yourself, put yourself in a position to get by for now, and keep an eye out for opportunities in the near future. And hey, if you find yourself having a lot of free time, why not check out any online course like on Skillshare, Coursera, or wherever. May as well learn something that you might be good enough at a few months from now on, who knows? You might just develop a new skill that people would like to pay you for. I'm not sponsored by any of those, by the way, just throwing out some ideas for you to consider. Anyway, keep your head up. I hope things go well for you, and keep tuning into the show for a dose of good news and interesting stuff every now and then. If you could tell a friend about it and share bits of the show, that'd be great. I'd appreciate it. Things are still chugging away in the background, and I'm hoping that I can finish a couple of things sooner rather than later so I can announce them the next show or the following one. In the meantime, keep it locked in, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whichever one it is. Check out www.750ml.fm for more information, and if you want, follow 750ml on Telegram and Minds. Anyway, back to the episode. Have you ever collected anything in your life? You know, things like baseball cards, antique coins or stamps, or any sort of collectible that had some sort of uniqueness and financial value if you decided to cash it in? What about works of art or classic cars? It makes sense. You collect something that's rare enough, maybe something made by a skilled craftsman or a renowned artist. It's something that's really cool or beautiful or it just evokes any sort of pleasantness within you. If it makes you happy, then you've got a collectible that may well be worth quite a bit of money. Real things that you can collect and sell, and real things that you have an expert appraise and prove or disprove if it's a legit thing. So here's the story. In today's hyper-digital day and age, everything's becoming, well, digital. And now, that includes digital collectibles. Let's back up a little to set the scene. In 2006, England-based street artist uh, and political activist Banksy created a piece of art called Morons. Morons is an intricate, detailed, black-and-white screen print illustration that depicts an auctioneer in the middle of the image conducting a sale to a room packed with bidders. On the right side half of the illustration is the item being auctioned, a large framed canvas with the words, I can't believe you morons actually buy this, and it ends with an expletive. Banksy's Morons is meant to satirize the record-breaking sale of a Vincent van Gogh painting a decade and change ago. That was back in March 30, 1987, when Japanese insurance magnate Yasuo Goto 
paid the equivalent of 39 million 921 and 750,000 US dollars for Van Gogh's still life, vase with 15 sunflowers at an auction at Christie's London, which at the time was a record-setting amount for a work of art. The record prior to that was 12 million dollars. Here's a funny thing. Sometime after the sale, a controversy arose that questioned whether or not this record-breaking amount of money was paid for a genuine Van Gogh painting or a forgery by the infamously suspected art forger Emil Schuffenecker. Morons itself was valued at $95,000, and in the year it was exhibited, a set of 100 unsigned prints sold for $500 apiece, with a couple of other variants being released and sold afterwards. There are layers and layers of irony here, which was probably Banksy's entire point, and would very likely have him tickled and laughing all the way to the bank. So why are we talking about this today? On Wednesday, the 3rd of March, 2021, a certified original print by Banksy was burned by a collective of technology and art enthusiasts who bought the painting. The reason they burned it was because they digitized it, and they created a unique, original, digitized version of that artwork that couldn't be copied, imitated, or pirated, shall we say. Just like a work of art in the real physical world can only have one original and everything else is either an official or unofficial copy, the digital version they made is the only original one of itself, with everything else after it being either a legitimate copy or an unofficial copy. How could this be, you might ask? Isn't anything that's digitized easily copied and redistributed nowadays? You know, like when I send a picture of my cat to my family, my original one stays with me, and their copy is practically the same one as mine. Yes, kind of, and no. It depends on what technology is involved. In the case of Banksy's morons, this work of art was digitized and turned into an NFT, a non-fungible token. Now this is what our entire story is all about. So stick with me here. We are almost quite literally staring at the future of collectible in the face, right here, right now. The simplest way to explain what an NFT is, is to first explain what it isn't. Let's start with that, and let's start with the word fungible. It's a funny word that none of us would probably use in any normal conversation, unless you're an accountant or a serious tech enthusiast. Fungible means interchangeable, especially in the sense of one thing that's of the same type. For example, let's say I have a $5 bill in my wallet and you have your own $5 bill in your wallet. We can swap $5 bills, never mind the reasons why, because they're the same type of thing and they have the same value. That's an example of a fungible thing. It's interchangeable. Same thing if both of us had $10 bills or $20 bills that we could swap with each other. Same type of thing, interchangeable. You can apply this to if I had a cup of brown sugar and you had a cup of brown sugar. You get the principle. So when it comes to non-fungible, it means you can't exchange it for something else because there's nothing else like it. It's the only one of its kind. In the real world, the easiest example of this would be an original work of art, like an original Picasso painting, for instance. But that's in the real world. How can something digital be non-fungible? So grab your flashlights and some bear spray because we might get deep in the woods here, folks. So creating a unique digital thing that cannot be forged like a non-fungible token is now possible thanks to blockchain technology. Without it, 
You just can't do things like this. For the purposes of this story, that's the big picture level of understanding that we'll need and I'll stop at that. We could spend several episodes just talking about blockchain technology and then get into the weeds of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and I'm, I'm not ready to utterly bore most of my listeners to death and completely tank the podcast yet. So NFTs are unforgeable, verifiably unique digital things. Back to morons. The Banksy's moron screen print used here, this wasn't the original piece by Banksy himself, just an official legitimate screen print which was number 325 of 500 which happened to be the first to be turned into an NFT was burned digitized into a unique one of one NFT and then auctioned off online on a service called OpenSea a digital marketplace for NFTs there are many different marketplaces online where you can buy and sell things like this remember how much the original screen print for morons was priced at 95,000 US dollars. How much was Morons, the NFT version, sold for? 394,000 US dollars, thereabouts. Let that sink in. So, remember at the beginning we talked about some examples of things that people traditionally collected? Things like antique stamps, coins, sports trading cards, antique luxury wristwatches, artwork, things like that. Maybe a few decades ago when people started collecting these things, Others might have thought, what are you doing? You're, you're collecting that useless bunch of things. That's not valuable at all. So fast forward to present day. We know for a fact that there are huge markets for collectibles from decades or even centuries ago. And if they're not held in museums, the wealthiest of the world buy and trade these from and for their private collections. And now we are facing the birth of a new era of collectibles, unique and rare digital items, one of a kind, in the form of NFTs, thanks to blockchain technology. We are watching this develop before our very eyes right now. And yes, the technology also allows for potentially displaying NFTs in real-world art galleries and museums. NFTs are verifiable and unforgeable. Any place exhibiting these digital artifacts can simply produce their digital receipt from the blockchain ledger. It's exactly what it sounds like that proves authenticity. Just like there are ways to authenticate real-world objects that are already exhibited in most museums and galleries right now. It should be noted that similar to collectible items in the real world, there's no guarantee that an NFT will get more valuable over time. It just might be the other way around, but I guess it might depend on what the thing itself is. And just like there's a variety of unique real-world things you can collect, there's also a variety of very different things you can collect digitally. You can basically turn almost quite literally anything into an NFT. It can be animated GIFs, memes, music, videos, documents, random pictures, even literal tweets, anything. As long as it's digital, of course. I'll give you some examples of the more popular or maybe the increasingly infamous NFTs that have been put out there recently. Musical artist Grimes, for example, whose real name is Claire Lise Boucher, who others may know as Elon Musk's significant other, sold a 50-second conceptual music video for $388,938. Overall, she sold 10 original pieces of an NFT set for a total of $5.8 million in just under 20 minutes. William Shatner, best known as Captain Kirk from Star Trek, the original TV series, ventured into digital collectibles in 2020 
and issued 90,000 digital cards on the WAX blockchain, showcasing various images of himself. Each card was initially sold for approximately $1 and now provides Shatner with passive royalty income every time one is resold. Artist Beeple, real name Mike Winkleman with two N's, created a work of art titled The First 5,000 Days, a digital-only work of art. One of the things Beeple is known for is creating and posting a work of art every single day, and he hasn't missed a day in 13 years. The first 5,000 days is a collection of images of every single work of art that he had made during the first 5,000 days he'd done, arranged in a way that displays a unique images, and having looked at it, it's an astronaut with what looks like ice crystals growing out of its suit, set against a plain gray canvas background. This one was sold by the storied auction house Christie's. Remember them? Coming quite a long way from what they normally deal in from when they were first established in 1766. Okay, so NFTs can be high concept art music videos, celebrity image sets, and more traditional, air quotes, digital art. What other things have been traded? Well, rock band Kings of Leon released their latest album, When You See Yourself, as an NFT for $50 each. After two weeks, though, no more will be made available. People who buy the album will get a unique digital copy along with a vinyl one. They're also selling six golden tickets as NFTs, which allows the purchaser front row seats to show their choice during each Kings of Leon tour for life. Other artists like Post Malone, DJ Khaled, and others have also gotten into doing NFT-based things for their fans. Then, um, there's this NBA Top Shot digital collectible card of basketball star LeBron James, which recently sold for $100,000. And finally, the very first tweet by Jack Dorsey, the man who founded Twitter, has been sold for $2.5 million. Yep, NFTs are a thing, man. People make them, people sell them, and people buy them for a lot of money. Anyway, it's time for this episode's featured track, a song called Touch and Go by an instrumental rock project called Intervals, off the album The Way Forward, which was released in 2017. It's a great song from a great album, but if I had to pick just one track to recommend, it'd be this one, which just so happens to be the album opener as well. So it's a feel-good track that's got so many great instrumental hooks to it. It's bright, it's uplifting, and even lush midway through. So check it out in the show notes or just hit refresh when looking at the featured tracks playlist on Apple Music and Spotify. Links to everything in the show notes, of course. And that is it for this episode of 750 Mills. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm to check out links to the stuff we've talked about in this episode. That includes the featured track along with this episode's secret link. You can subscribe and listen to the 750ml's podcast on podomatic.com if you want to do it directly, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts might be found. All you got to do is just type in 750ml's podcast at 750ml space podcast in the search box and tap on the follow button. Links to all of that will be in the show notes, and you can find all of that on www.750ml.fm. If you've been enjoying it so far, please consider leaving a star rating and a review. Your feedback helps improve the podcast, and it can help other people find it as well, and I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, folks, thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll leave you with a thought from Pablo Picasso, speaking of the guy 
on inspiration versus discipline. Here's what he said. Inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. Hope you have a good day. Take care now.